0: This is Farmer D, bringing you Season 2 of the Citizen Farmers Podcast, where we are reimagining community through interviews with citizen farmers throughout the country. This season, our goal is to inspire, teach, and connect you to the projects, people, and places that are changing the way we live through regenerative agriculture, conservation, and community development. Are you ready to build a healthier, more connected world? Let's get started. Today, my guest is Pierre Ferrari, president and CEO of Heifer International. How are you, Pierre?
1: I'm very well. Good to see you. That's and you're just around you. the corner.
0: I know. It's so <laughs> funny. We were just laughing how we're on Zoom and we're literally less than half a mile from each other living in Serenby. And you know, I got to say, this is so special for me, Pierre, because you are the one person who wrote a book review on the actual book on Citizen Farmers. I'm looking at it right here. So those of you who have a book, we'll see on the back of the book Pierre's quote, and I'll share it because it's it's, uh, it's special. <laughs> this was uh, 2014, and I, yeah. Pierre and I you you and I met randomly at a at a restaurant when Steph and I went out on a date <laughs> eight years yeah. ago. Nine yeah, we, we figured it was eight years ago. We have the and, same we have the same tastes. We <laughs> and then and then eight years later, to the day. Eight years later to the day, we end up at a restaurant together at the Hill at Serenby sitting next to each other again. So crazy. So here's the quote that um, the book review quote that Pierre so generously provided for Citizen Farmer's book. Darren's book offers a way to reconnect with ourselves, our food, our soils, a vast global farmer's network, and all of the beloved ecosystem in a way that will nourish us in astounding and myriad ways. Thank you, Farmer D, for this gift. I am out composting are you, <laughs> who would have thought that eight, ten 10 years later, right? Almost that we would be composting together. Cause I don't know if you realize this, but you're composting at your house, probably putting it in the B farm compost program.
1: Yeah, 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 absolutely.
0: Uh, I'm trading parking for my RV on the farm to manage the compost
1: operation. <laughs> ah, I didn't know that. Oh, wow. Wow. That, that is unbelievable synchronicity. Huh? And we're composting together. Yeah, we're composting together. Wow. So you manage to? Come, I'm going to come over when it's uh, when it's not raining and see what we'll see what you're doing over there.
0: So I'm excited to dig in with you and learn more about Heifer International because you know I've always been really inspired by the work. I'm excited to learn more about the organization. And you know it's funny when I talk to people about Heifer you know 9 times out of 10 people initially are they're like they they haven't heard of it and then when i tell them what it is like oh yeah i did that and i you know bought a chicken or a cow or a goat right right and so i'm 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 excited to learn more about it and to 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 share that with our audience so maybe to start you know if you could just kind of give us a quick overview it doesn't have to be too quick cuz you guys do a lot of stuff so you know, tell us a little bit about Heifer
1: International. <laughs> yeah, so you know, we just we were started about seventy-five years ago by a dairy farmer, or the son of a dairy farmer, actually, Dan West, and he had been he was a member of the Church of the Brethren. I don't know if you know that church. It's say it's one of the three peace churches, Christian churches, uh, Mennonites, Church of the Brethren, and of course the Quakers. And uh, so they were conscientious objectors, etc. But they they sent out their young men and women to help out in situations, and he worked to help the refugees from the, the Spanish Civil War. Mm. And they were handing out uh, milk powder, uh, reconstituted milk powder and for milk for to feed the children. And he sort of said, you know, these, these people don't need milk or a cup of milk, they need a cow. And so that's how the whole movement started. He said, okay, well, let's move, let's see if we can get American farmers, not necessarily a chest of the bread, any kind of farmer to donate animals. That could then be used by farmers, and that's how the whole movement started. And Heifer just—it's just an extraordinary story. And we've got a good historian out of the Church of the Brethren that's actually documenting all this. Uh, we've been—we placed uh, Heifer International, Heifer Project International, placed animals in Germany, in Poland, in Greece, in Austria, in Czechoslovakia, in Japan, in South Korea. Every, all over, just as a post-war kind of charitable organization. And the Koreans, to this day, recognize that the work that was done by Stanford Project International actually helped feed a large number of farmers in South Korea and help them survive, literally survive, okay. uh, if it was not for those cows and goats and chickens. Et anyway, that's the beginning of it. And then we moved into the catalog, which a lot of people know. You know, Buy a cow, buy this. And for a long time, that's what we did. We, is called asset transfer. That's that's the technical development term for exit transfer. And what we've now lately, just to move to you know 2018, 19, we're now working with farmers in a different way. We still are very livestock oriented. There's no question as to where we work, which is in Latin America, Africa, and Asia. Livestock is a very profitable and productive activity for both income generation, nutrition, et cetera. Okay. You know this better than I do. There are, I think, three miracles in agriculture. And I don't mean religious miracles, but kind of phenomenal scientific things that happen. One, of course, is uh, you know the solar energy that comes down. And through photosynthesis, it is transformed into food, right? And sometimes food that we can't eat. And that's the second miracle, which is enteric digestion, ruminant digestion, right? Mm-hmm. That converts a bunch of food or a bunch of fibers and everything else into food that we can eat, right? Meat, milk, et cetera. And then the third miracle, which is part of the model that we operate in a way, is the reproduction of animals. So you've got when you put the three together, you've got this extraordinary system that is, you know, self-perpetuating if you take care of it well, which is some, you know, obviously a very important component of what you do. And with with the care and love that's needed to to maintain those three systems working in harmony, you've got a very productive system that keeps us all alive. And uh, so that's that's what we do now. We actually, I would add a fourth. Yeah. And maybe this was implied in the digestion compost. Yeah, compost. Right. So, the soil quality, right? So, yeah. I, I was going to get to that. Maybe. So, the way we work soil and we are committed, we're crazy about soil quality and soil health and soil fertility, okay? Because at the end of the day, in spite of all the other things that are going on, if you don't have good soil, you're not going to be able to feed yourself. I mean, it's just uh... so, you know, we're, we're members of the Savory Institute and we, you know, we've got a farm in uh, actually a ranch in in Perryville, uh, Arkansas, where everything is uh, regenerative farming and we measure the soil. Now, we're working with uh, hundreds of thousands of farmers all over the world on this idea of climate, what we call climate-smart agriculture, which has to do with basically creating a soil that it can withstand drought, it can withstand too much rain. This capacity of the soil, when it's healthy, to absorb shocks is astonishing. And because of our livestock history, we very much include animal waste as part of that process okay and it doesn't have to be pure vegetable animal waste can be incredibly useful if it's well managed as well and whether it's cow poop or chicken bitter or whatever it is we include it all and we have all sorts of uh, i call them i call them recipes making well you know you know this this world well recipes on how to make compost out of animal waste mixing it with sometimes you have to mix it with lime and and waste and etc you know, etc cetera, et cetera. so
0: you remind me of just a fun little piece of the book that was kind of a random little addition called Know Your Poo. Yeah. <laughs> it talks about how, and I, I learned this from my late mentor who passed away this year, Hugh Lovell, that in, on, the farm, on the biodynamic farm, we would use cow manure for leafy greens because it's so nitrogen rich and Which, amazing yeah. for leafy greens. We would use chicken manure for fruiting vegetables. Because it's so high in phosphorus and so good for tomatoes and zucchinis and and pig manure for potatoes, it's really, oh, really? potash. Yeah. And goat manure for like herbs and and flowers, flowering crops. So anyway, it's, you know, not all manure is the same, right? It's like it's a- the
1: same, no, of course not. Yeah, no, I, I I'll, I'll never forget. I was in in Malawi, and uh, we had trained this village. Uh, we had provided them with a lot of chicken. So they had a lot of chicken litter or manure. And they had figured out, oh, it actually taught them a particular recipe on how to take all, assemble it. The whole so the whole village brought all of their chicken litter together. And in the middle of the village square, they piled it all up and then mixed it up with greens, brown, brown litter, et cetera, et cetera. And the women were in there with their hands mixing it all up. And then they covered it with a sheet of plastic and let it mature for two weeks and ferment. And then they uncovered it, and then they put it back on the field to grow their corn. And they said, ever since they've been using that kind of manure, their corn was doing fine. And they were using a special technique to actually plant the corn, which is, I mean, and, and they said the production per acre had gone from, you know, one ton per acre, they were going to three or four. I mean, it's just dramatic impact.
0: But you know, it's interesting. And when I think about, um, you know, I got into biodynamic farming, right, which is all closing the loop and producing your own animals and manures and compost and it, it seems like one of the things that's happened in agriculture is because of kind of the commodification and specialization everything moved more to these kind of monocultures mm-hmm. and and we lost the fertility cycle and then that, that created a, a need to import fertilizers which kind of opened the door for chemical fertilizers and we lost the we lost the virtuous cycle where the soil health is is part of the ecosystem when you have a balanced farm, when you mm-hmm. have animals mm-hmm. and you have... So, you know, trying to repair at scale, you know, bringing the fertility back into balance is it now requires a lot of shipping and trucking and bringing materials. And it's not, you know, when you move away from these localized... More sustainable farming models yeah. and get into that larger scale. It's right. It, it becomes very, very difficult to maintain the balance, right, in these
1: in these farm ecosystems. Yeah, you know, it's uh, we have we've done it a little bit in South America, and we do it obviously at the ranch. This whole idea of managing and segregating the, the 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 animals, the cows particularly, and then move them around the ranch, right? That whole approach at Savory, and the mm-hmm. Savory Institute pushes very hard. And we're finding that the, the quality of the soil on our ranch, we started off pretty low because it had been exploited, it had been fertilized artificially, et cetera, et cetera. Now uh, we're finding that in this particular area, there's there's a particular part of the farm that's very prone to, or used to be very prone to flooding. It no longer floods. Mm-hmm. You know, The soil is able to absorb it and mm-hmm. a tremendous amount of water. Just that
0: alone, when you look at just the water-holding capacity... But I think it's, I forget the numbers, but for every 1% of organic matter, you increase in the soil, right? The water holding capacity goes up exponentially. And just that for drought, as you were saying, for climate resilient agriculture and water being such a a factor, it's it's profound. I got to say, the visual of the composting in the middle of the village square is one of the most beautiful stories because
1: right, I'll just, send you a picture. I'll send we, you a picture.
0: Society just pushes that. We look at it as waste, right? And it's like something right. you need to put, get away. And I always try to put compost piles kind of in the middle of the garden and not on the edge yeah. because it's the reason the book starts with the chapters. The
1: oh, and, and the women knew it. They knew it. You yeah. know, for them, it was not, uh, it was not theoretical.
0: It reminded me of my my first biodynamic compost workshop was with this Native American elder. I think his name was Israel. And when we built the biodynamic compost pile at the Michael Fields Institute, there was a ritual that, you know, we danced on the pile, you know, when you compact the pile. Yeah, Yeah. And I remember, I remember having this like really visceral moment of like, oh, this is where the culture and agriculture comes from in a way, right? It's like there are these rituals and understandings and this wisdom and this spirituality around these sacred stewardship practices, yeah, Re- reverence, right? And at, I bet you see that in such a beautiful way
1: around the world and all the way that Well, cultures... you know, the, the connection between agricultural success and survival is very stark where we work, right? If the crop is bad, they go hungry or they some people die. Mm-hmm. So the spiritual nature of the connection between land and you know the ability to farm correctly is is as I said stark. It's so visible, and so anything they can do to improve the production of the land, and that's why many farmers in Africa are kind of suspicious of artificial fertilizers. They 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 sense at some level that it's not actually good for the land, and uh, and of course it costs money too. Let's be frank, <laughs> uh, you know.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean that's it's it's a really profound thing that you say. And I was I was having this interesting conversation last night about different religious and cultural stories that we hold that in, yeah. In, and when when it comes down to life or death, when it comes down to survival, the level of connection and spirituality, right, is is something that is so real. You know, when it comes down to to life or death, when you know ag success and survival, like you talk about, it's a different relationship than I think a lot of us growing up in kind of privileged Western society can't
1: relate to or understand. Uh, right. You know, I think what what's inspired by dynamic farming, or maybe you not know, inspired, but actually created, is Rudolf Steiner, right? And uh, you, do you want to talk a little bit about that, or is your audience very familiar with that? I think what what I would say
0: about it, just in context of our, of our conversation, I think is. What I was one of the things I was really intrigued by biodynamics. We talked about here so far, which is this idea of the the farm as a closed loop, um, yeah. as a self contained living organism. The other is this like this idea of it beyond just the farm as a business, or but more as a social, cultural center for community. You know, I think mm. biodynamics really looks at agriculture in a more holistic context mm-hmm. as part of kind of the social heart. Of the community. And it digs into some like ancient wisdom around what we've been talking about, this connection to the land, this this higher level of sensitivity and stewardship, right? And so, you know, I think one of the things that I'm so inspired to learn more about in the work that Heifer does and, and, and farming around the world is there's so much ancient wisdom there. There's so much generational wisdom and different farming approaches around the world and how those farming communities live and how the farming and the relationship to the land influences the culture. And you can see how quickly culture can shift when agriculture changes, right? When it becomes European sugarcane versus what was indigenous, right? I mean, the way it's changed the world. Um, and so how do we repair, you know, I guess, you know, to maybe flip this question back on you a bit is like, you've worked in the corporate world, right? You were at Coca-Cola. Yeah, I have. You're in, now you're in this kind of global network of, of, of farmers. How has agriculture changed culture and society in the world? And how do you see the future? Like, what are the impacts you're seeing happen in the work you do that are, are improving some of the things that have been you know, damaged as a result of
1: mm-hmm. agriculture? Yeah, there's uh, there's actually uh, you've heard of uh, I'm sure Mark Bittman, sure, you know the yeah. food writer, mm-hmm. and he's just come out with a book called Animal, Vegetable, and Junk. And uh, it's an incredible indictment on the food system that we have, mm. and it speaks directly to the issue that you've raised. So, I'm not going to say anything. I've just almost finished the book, not quite, but nice. I'm not going to say anything that Mark Bittman is not saying, which is that modern agriculture has created, uh, you know, a, a desert of. I mean, you talked about spiritual value, a desert and elimination of spiritual value in connection to the land. It's created an underlying Unhealthy food system that has led to you know pretty massive diseases and sort of these systemic diseases that we suffer from heart attack and cancers and everything else. And I mean the read the read is, is a dark read uh, because it is so damning of of the current system. Now what are we doing? You know we're certainly with our farmers who are not particularly preyed on by the the fertilizer companies or the, the GMO seed companies etc. So the message that's getting to the farmers more and more is use our chemicals. It will improve your productivity, which it does in the very short term, and you will benefit from it. Our, our response is, no, it will not. And with climate-smart agriculture, if you manage your, your land properly, we, we, the focus is on land. It's not so much on the productivity of the land. And that's, that's a real shift mm-hmm. for the farmers to say, you will get your five tons or four tons of, of corn out of the land. But make sure your soil, you've got to take care of your soil. Everybody talks about root causes. So here it is. You know, it's root causes. And they get it. They get it so much more quickly than our farmers. You know, well, they don't have 10,000 acres either, but, you know. So the connection, we we, can draw, we draw the connection very quickly that local food and local approaches and focus on soil is the way to go. It works. It works. Yeah. And so we're doing that. We're doing that in Arkansas. We're working with a whole range of different people. African American, new African American farmers. we have forested pork with them. We're working with native, uh, native indigenous people in Oklahoma. You know, Grass fed beef. You know, we really are, in our little way, we are promoting the fact of local food, local organic food, you know, and all of those practices that we know are superior to the, the mass marketing. And uh, you know. The scaling problem is the issue, right? I'm old enough to remember when the organic movement started, and it was seen as a bunch of, you know, Birkenstock hippies out of California somewhere. (laughs) And, you know, it's grown into, um, unfortunately, a major, well, it's a major industry. Unfortunately, it's slowly but surely being captured by uh, some other interests, but there's a good, it's a good fight against it.
0: So, thankfully, I think that there's been a response. Growth in regenerative farming has been, yeah. I think, in large part, right in response to hey, the organic's right. good, but it's not good enough. If we're going to turn climate, right. turn things around, we need to be regenerative, not just sustainable. We can't sustain the current system. We need to change it and regenerate it. Yeah. You know, I, I want to pick up on something you said there around Mark Bittman's work around a, a, a quote unhealthy food system for for the audience. I mean, what how do you describe a food system, right? I mean, there's so many different places around the world, right? Where, you know, it's amazing. It's fascinating to me the way that food is produced, processed, distributed, consumed in different places. You know, we've we've moved away from these kind of local food systems Mm -hmm. to these this global food system. And now it feels like we've realized that you know, while that's great, we can, quote, feed the world and people can eat you know, tomatoes in winter and eat whatever they want, whenever they want. Mm-hmm. It also has a huge impact. And so I'm curious, from your perspective in this work, you know, how do you describe a food system to people? And what, what is it about a food system that is important for us as citizens
1: to understand? So the way we go about analyzing a food system and the objective of the work that we do today at Heifer, first of all, it's community-led. We call it values-based, holistic community development. And we mobilize the farmers into co-ops and all sorts of other aggregations with a process we call the 12 cornerstone training, etc., which starts, there's two components to it. One is that a lot of the farmers worldwide, and, you know, 70 to 80% of the food that's eaten every day is actually produced by smallholder farmers. It's not produced by the global food system, okay? And they feed themselves, and they feed billions of, on, on a local basis. So we have to convince them to move from a level of subsistence farming, which is a bit hopeless because the productivity is low, and they live in a very harsh system that doesn't really allow them to be, to be productive. And we move them to a, le- a level of hopefulness about the fact that they have, in a way, they have the power because they have the land, right? And they have the soil. They have the dirt. And whoever owns the dirt ultimately wins the war, right? It's about that. And so we teach them. And by doing the analysis, they say, well, here's the current system. Here's what it's doing to us all, not just you farmers, which we explain, but here's how the international traders trade and the pricing that they do. And the systems that are in place, the systems that are in place essentially continuously exploit the producers to a place of marginal living, okay. whether it be coffee or grains or rice or everything else, the producers get screwed. So we, we teach our farmers and the communities with which we work, we say, all right, we've got to respond by controlling our own food system. Back to your question, and what's a food system? It is actually the production, the processing, the transportation, whatever needs to be done to the food so that it can be actually consumed. And so they get it right away. They know because they haven't made any money. And they see, the, you know, they see the traders come in with their cars and everything else when they have to walk home. So they are very much and very enthusiastic participants in creating a food system of their own that is pro-poor. It is about creating wealth and value for themselves. That's the big difference. That's the change that's going to happen. Because if you keep a system that is segregated where the producers are segregated from the transportation that segregate from the retail and everything else the power is going to be with the ultimate retailer where the money is all right? but if you can have a system where the farmers are engaged through ownership and governance mm-hmm. on the retailing of the of the of the material whether it be farmers market or restaurants or whatever that's changing the system that right. is changing the yeah. system
0: and that's a radical change. I mean, you, you see a few models of co ops. You know, I think most yeah. of that has been where there's more of a vertical integration and the producers are invested in the whole value chain, not just the capitalist market works to where they try to get the least amount, pay yeah. the least for the product, right? To make the most. Right, of course. And the farmer always loses, and it's so frustrating always. to see that because the farmer takes the m- biggest risk; they work the hardest. So yeah, so that's that's so. You know, you
1: know what? One, one of the principles yep. that we 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 talk about at Hefa is how do you manage the system? How do you create a new system so that the farmers can maintain ownership of what they have grown as long as possible? Mm-hmm. Okay, if you think about the chain, okay, the value chain or the supply chain or whatever, if they can keep ownership. Of the product as it moves through ultimately to be consumed, then they reap all of the margin. So, and that requires working capital, Mm. right? That which they don't have, which we are now deploying. You know, I don't know how many of of my colleagues are going to listen to this thing, but I think the development system Mm. will slowly but surely move into being a financial system. How do we provide the capital so the farmers can retain control and ownership? Whether it be coffee, if you think about it, Starbucks makes all the money. And they take possession of the coffee as soon as they can so that they can maintain quality. And they do a great job. I mean, there's no question. They're an incredible marketing organization. But the farmers get paid, you know, 80 cents at the farm gate. Their cost structures are $1, $40. They're losing money. So if they can maintain ownership of the coffee all the way to retail, to a coffee shop, they make money. So this idea of the farmer being maintaining ownership of the goods they produce as long as possible. You know, which includes processing and transportation, you know. And so we're right now, a lot of the work that we're doing is saying, can we buy trucks together, either with local government or local banks or whatever it is. But if you have control over the transportation, you don't have to sell it, except sell it the place where you get more money. for it. To me, that's the, the idea of control. It's like precious. It's really precious to keep owning. You know, we're doing refrigeration now so that the farmers can control, you know, the vegetable grow, uh, the vegetable they've grown as long as possible before they get to market stuff like that it's an interesting principle to think about
0: it's uh it's probably it's it's kind of the most important i'm so glad that you're you're hitting on this because really if we're going to change the system and enable farmers to make a good living and and do farming in a way that's good for the planet and for people's health we have to invest in farmers so that they can get the returns they need
1: absolutely absolutely and improve the
0: soil at the same time. And exactly. I, I I've noticed what, what's interesting, too, is what you're talking about and the work you're doing around the world is as relevant here, right here, for example, in the Chattahoochee Hill Country, and the infrastructure to create that value chain and have farmers participate from, you know, beyond just selling something, being a, a part of creating a value chain for local products, regeneratively grown. We need capital to invest in the infrastructure that's no longer here, right? The distribution, the marketing. Farmers are really good at growing food, but they're expected to do everything. You know, It's really not designed for success, the current system. Um, it's a large reason why I got out of trying to make a living as a small farmer and became a consultant. Because I realized this is not... We need to change the system in order yes. for... It's actually funny. It's very similar. If you listen to my interview with Steve Nigren, when he started Serenby, where we both live, he started by saying, I can't build Serenby... Unless I change the system that it sits in within the zoning of this whole region, once right. that's changed, now I can do a serenbe, build a community the way a community should be built. You know, it's it's
1: it, yeah, it's it's and it's not that complicated. You know, we can move from the abstract, you know, change the system to some very pragmatic stuff. You know, farming is very practical, right? It's it's wearing the boots and going into the dirt and and doing the stuff, but it's 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 storage. You know, what kind of storage you need? In many places, especially in vegetables and fruit, you need refrigeration. Now, do you do it solar? So there's a lot of steps that are well understood. But actually, there's another system that does it quite well at huge scale, but at the expense of the farmers. So it's quite possible. You know, I'm just thinking, I'm wondering about the Serenbee farm. I don't think, does it have a refrigerated storage space? Yes, it does, isn't it?
0: It was the same used Deer cooler that I bought 20 years ago. <laughs> really? They just had to install a new CoolBot system on the old cooler because it finally pooped out after yeah,
1: several yeah. repairs. But yes, they do. <laughs> yeah, they do. But you know, you need that, right? I mean, you need yeah. that to actually satisfy consumer demand and to protect your protect your yeah. produce. I think we're doing that in Honduras. We're actually putting in solar-powered refrigeration. And, you know, it's going to change. It's, the, the farmer, if he can't control back to the ownership, he can't control ownership of the produce. He has to sell it. And of course, he's going I mean, to sell yeah, it at a very low price. Take advantage of, yeah. it, uh, I remember, I'll remember. i tell you a story about Cambodia. We were in Cambodia. And it was a farm where we had taught them how to raise chickens, uh, rabbits. And they improved their uh, animal protein consumption dramatically simply by having I mean, the product there. And it wasn't really about sales of chicken, although today it's different. Anyway, we were meeting with the leadership of the of the village. And they were just sitting on the floor there. And it was it was really fun. And somebody, I think I asked them, I said, well, what do you really need? You know, what do you need now? He said, well, we need a rice bank. A rice bank. What the hell is a rice bank? That's the way it was translated. And what it is was a storage bin, a large storage bin for their rice. And it cost $100. $100. I said, well, you've got your rice bank. You know, we we will donate (laughs) you a rice bank. And all it is is a big concrete bin that they put their crop, their early crop in, and they store it there. Until prices recover from, you know the the, the, the flood that comes mm-hmm. at, at at harvest, and they get like three or four times the price. Wow! Yeah, very I'm,
0: simple. I'm curious to hear from your experience at Coca-Cola, right? Because you you were yeah. in, I mean, the largest, probably one of the largest, most successful distribution and marketing companies yeah. in the world, right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, what, what lessons? Can you bring from that experience to this kind of distributed, decentralized, you know, network of small farmholders to help, you know, start to create those value chains for farmers? What lessons can we learn from yeah. companies
1: like Coca-Cola? Right. One thing to remember is that Coca-Cola was actually built by a huge and large network of individual entrepreneurs. Mm. Right. The franchise for Coca-Cola was actually granted by county. In the United States. Hmm. That's how it started. So, you know, uh, Darren Joffe got the franchise for Fulton County or for Coweta County or whatever. And that's what you franchise. Now, the economics of the business got to the point where it, you know, you couldn't really uh, have a bottling plant because volume started growing. You could bottling plant for just Coweta County. You had to start merging and you start buying the franchise from other people around you. And that's how it slowly but surely grew into a more concentrated system. That's one of the lessons of watching a big system like that, is that the economics, the economies of scale, is a powerful force for consolidation. And we've seen that, of course, in the food system in the United States. And you know how to counter that? Because that, that's just pure economics, right? How do you introduce and internalize the other costs? The loss of connection to the soil, loss of connection to the community, loss of connection to nutritious food? I observed that. I mean, I, I was with Coca-Cola for, uh, you know, decades and you could see how the consolidation happened all over the world. And it, it was good for shareholders, and there's no question about it. It's good for shareholders. And the externalities were not apparent. Mm-hmm. You know? and so perhaps part of the advocacy work that we have to do is to keep pointing out the losses and the costs that come with that in a constructive way. You know, how do you how do you actually tell Coca-Cola that the way they buy their sugar? is destructive to the environment where they buy it from, not only environmentally, but also socially. And they're, they're sensitive to it. There's no question mm-hmm. it's sensitive. But I've bounced around the sort of corporate social responsibility world for a while, and it's all words, it's all talk. It's, you know, no, no real action. It Although seems... there's some indication maybe here and there that uh, there's some changes.
0: Yeah, it does. It seems just recently there seems to be more of a risk analysis yeah. around that stuff right but i think you're right i mean i think similar to changing the system in distribution where farmers are part of the value chain all the way through there's really you know our economic system doesn't really support the mo- the models that are good for for social and environmental benefits it's pure economics and so that kind of has you know, to change but you
1: know it, at, at the root of every system an agricultural system is the demand Supply is important. And you and I, you know, we'd like the soil and we like production. We want quality and highly nutritious food, locally produced, et cetera, et cetera. But if there's no one to buy it, <laughs> it doesn't work. And it can't be just local. I mean, California has shown that you can convince a large number of people to really think about the food they eat. So I think ultimately all these changes come back to educating consumers that buying meat that's grass-fed. You know, no, no chemical. You know, no chemical inputs, et cetera, et cetera. Is actually ultimately healthier, and that's the work we've got to do every day. So when you buy biodynamic grown food, the nutritional value of that ought to be apparent. But you know, it's not an immediate thing, right? You, you're not going to eat a salad and feel different. And it just it, it's over decades or years that change, change happened. To me, that's the biggest challenge, and that's one of the big lessons from Coca-Cola because it is a demand-driven business. You know, it is marketing advertising, promotion, presenting yourself and so you
0: know. I love that and that really ties back to the citizen farmer's philosophy, right? Is that we're yeah. all farming by proxy. We're all have that yeah. power yeah. and ability to change the system every
1: single day. Every, every single day. Yeah, it's powerful every single day. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh and you know there's some there's some good indications it's, it's beginning to happen. The the awareness that too much food today is actually toxic, right? It's actually dangerous over the long term. That's Mark Bittman's thesis in his book Mm. that this food is dangerous, especially the way it's been processed. Some of these
0: documentaries that are pulling the veil off of our food system, which has you know been hidden from the public. I was actually, I was thinking as you were talking about the value chain for the farmers, like you know technology, right? Like blockchain technology now. It seems and in cryptocurrency, there's all these like new era of tools in the toolkit that may be really interesting to help to uh, address some of those value chains and, and the way the economics works. And um, it feels like there's definitely a shift in the power, right, around, around money and, and transparency.
1: I think transparency is big. You know, we are we are Heifer is actually working on the with IBM on a blockchain system. And right now, it's not about so much the, the healthy food. It's more about identifying who the farmers are, and you begin with an understanding of the chain. And actually, it'll be a tool to actually maintain ownership of your coffee or your whatever. So we're working with the coffee value chain in, in Honduras with the value with, and actually the, we're also working on the groundnut value chain in Malawi. And that particular issue there is the aflatoxin. If the groundnut or the peanut is not managed properly in terms of storage, et cetera, et cetera, then it develops aflatoxin infection, which then becomes poisonous for humans. I mean, literally, directly poisonous. So the blockchain technology allows you to track how the the material is being handled, right, by the value chain, the supply chain. And again, we're we're really urging the farmers to say, if you want to sell your groundnut at the best price possible for export market, which is the best price, you need to manage this. You need to know where your groundnuts are before they get infected. And that the people who have taken ownership or are managing it for you are managing correctly. So it's an incredible technology which could change, at least that particular value chain, very substantially.
0: Yeah. It's great. I mean, it, it, you, we've had so many of these big food outbreaks with E. coli, wow. all this. I mean, we've seen the vulnerability now in the in the food system with large scale distribution around the world and food safety. And so, you know, I think having tools like blockchain to provide more s- safer food to people, but also at the same time, it's an opportunity, right, to also help understand, you know, the fair trade value, so to speak, right? The, yeah. the value chain is is an integrity as well. And that that the people through the process are also being treated fairly. And there's definitely a growing interest and awareness in the consumer that they want to know that stuff. They really do. People are much more aware than I think when you, you, you first got into this work and when I first got into this work. Um, there's a film coming out that I'm in called Seeding Change, and it really highlights a handful of these companies like Sambazon, Dr. Bronner's, Patagonia, and really looking at and following the supply chain, and going back and showing consumers, hey, you know, this is how we worked with small farmholder communities to both identify, um, you know, crops like acai and guayaquil, which you were on the board right with guayaquil mm-hmm, for mm-hmm, many years. Mm-hmm. You know, these companies changed through market-driven demand, right? Have changed for the better a lot of communities around the world to better steward their farms, their ecosystems, their soil, their forests, put food on the table for their communities, educate. And they got to be a part of the value chain, right? So some of these companies are, are carrying the farmer with them, their stories, and making that the key aspect of their business model is that you know we are helping these communities. And by, yeah. by buying this chocolate or buying this smoothie or buying this mm-hmm. tea, you can help, right? So it's kind of a, a market-driven versus philanthropy-driven approach.
1: Yeah, mm. yeah. No, it's, what's interesting is that the, in these smaller companies that started off over the past 10, ten, fifteen years, they never separated procurement from the marketing. It was integrated, and you know, uh, the guys at Guayaquil, they were very close and very tight with the procurement of the mate, whether it be from from Argentina, Brazil, or Paraguay. They knew the forest from which the mate came from. And it was part of the market. It was part of the, the gestalt, the culture. Mm. You go to a, a Unilever and the procurement function, we are incredibly important function for them. They buy you know, everything. It's completely separated from marketing. They are motivated, incented, paid to do one thing, to buy the specified commodity at the lowest possible price, period, regardless of the impact. And they say, no, we take care of the community, blah, blah, blah. They don't. Because at the end of the day, the farmers are struggling. And you know, there's been some changes here and there. I must say that Unilever folks on cocoa particularly seem to have gotten the message that they need a thriving community of cocoa farmers to have good quality cocoa with which to be successful in marketing. But the division between procurement and marketing uh, is always – I mean, I, I when I was at Coke, I was on the marketing side. I had no idea where the sugar came from. I had no idea where the cola came. I had none. I had no idea how they, they gave us the concentrate that we sold. None. And that we didn't even think about asking. Hmm. You know, we didn't even think about asking. If the new managers, you know, the millennials who are going into management are more open to this idea, says, Well, what, where the hell does this orange concentrate come from from my normal 5 Fanta? Just raising the question in a conversation, I know will change things, but it's going to take a long time. Ben and Jerry's. I was on the board there for a long time as well. Now, I don't think consumers have any idea where the milk comes from. None. And they should know. They yeah. should know where the cream and the sugar and everything else comes from and how well is it being managed.
0: It's such a simple shift in mindset and approach, but it can have such a dramatic effect.
1: They, they don't want you to know because they know it's not being managed in a socially right. responsible way. I mean, let's be honest with you. They just, they just don't. And that's where we go back to local. Mm. You know, can we get Arkansas and uh, western Western Tennessee and northern Texas to buy their, their beef from local producers? And we've got, we've got the processing now. We've got the, the herds. We've got processing. We've got the shipping. And we've got the system with which to feed locally. I don't know if we can feed them all, but, you know, we've got the system in place now. And we, we don't need the big companies to do it. Well, and the, and the
0: beauty of that, right, and this has been kind of the the story of local food for a long time, which is, you know, supporting your local economy, keeping those dollars mm-hmm. in, in your community, yeah. and then building relationships, you get to know the people that grow your food, you get to go and connect and participate and see where your food's coming from. And, you know, there's just, there's a, and this is kind of the biodynamics, right? This brings that social kind of community and you know, local economy piece into the, into the conversation. And it just makes a much richer experience because now not only are you getting good food, but you're also building vibrant community. You're, you're invested in each other. Yeah. This idea that there's no such thing as consumers. They're all co-producers. Yeah, And so when that relationship dynamic changes, the whole model kind of can shift and people become more invested and in their food and, and all the things that they purchase and the impacts that that can have on their health. But more importantly, on the broader health of communities and the farmers yeah. and the artisans and the processors and the soil. No, yeah, the
1: it's, yeah it's, it's happening in restaurants a little bit. And I think that's probably the point where at least you've got a more in general. And I don't talk about fast food. I'm talking about sit down, white tablecloth restaurant. There seemed to be a real interest in identifying the farmers, identifying the source of the food. Yesterday, my wife and I went out for the first time because we've both been vaccinated now to a restaurant. So we went out. To a, a restaurant you may know the Optimist here in, oh, yeah. in Atlanta. for mm-hmm. seafood restaurant i had been hankering for oysters and they they're interesting the I'd never seen this before but the oysters were identified not only by the type of oyster it was but where they came from the flavors everything it was a full description of the product hmm. and uh, and they were served in a wonderful way et cetera et cetera but I think that's the that's the direction where you begin to understand you know these particular and they're all farmed oysters of course but you're beginning to understand that this particular oysters that I'm drink, eating are actually produced by a responsible farmer, a responsible producer. That's the change we need. That's the change we need.
0: Yeah, it's nice to see that, you know, it's been a tough year for restaurants and well, I think a, a lot of my friends who are in the restaurant business are really rethinking the whole model. You know, I think they've also gotten off the treadmill a little bit of why they got into this business because a lot of a lot of them got into it because they want to tell the story, they want to connect people to the food, they want to support the farmers, and that's what that's what kind of inspires them to do the work because it's a lot of work. Restaurants are tough. My oh God, yeah, it is. It's, I think we're all craving to get back into the and, and have those experiences, and I hope mm. that. There's a shift of awareness through COVID and the the vulnerability in our food system and the issues around health, which I don't think got spoken about enough, you know, just the resiliency of people being healthier. I I think COVID also is one of these kind of natural phenomenons that was able to take root at such a scale because our societies around the world, due to the things where you and I are talking about right now, Mm -hmm. are just not as resilient. We're not as healthy. We're not as, we're pretty vulnerable because our food systems and our soil health and our the human health across the world has really, I think suffered. And so, you know, I think it's exciting to think about coming out of COVID some of the new energy around this and awareness around this and opportunities to have deeper conversations mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and, and really, we got a lot of work to do. You know, this is not just about us getting better food for ourselves and our communities. This is about us saving the planet really at the end of the day. Yep. You know, and agriculture can play a significant role and the way we eat can actually be a way that we contribute to that journey. So and Pierre, t- how did how did you go from a Coca-Cola, you know, executive to uh head of a farm based global nonprofit? Tell us a little bit about your journey in this.
1: So I um I was born in the Congo in Africa. And so were my parents, so my grandparents and my great grandparents were basically Italians and instead of immigrating to Ellis Island you know in the United States they went to Africa through Cape Town and they ended up in this uh, mining town called at the time called Elizabethville and that area that area of the Congo uh, I'm talking about a large area now is a you know mining cornucopia you name it it's got diamonds it's got gold it's got tin it's got copper it's got everything you want it's extraordinary anyway they ended up in this town which was thriving or growing at the time on copper mining. Uh, so, and I'm telling this story because my grandmother, in particular, very pious Catholic, very pious and very good friends with the local bishop, she was working with the bishop and they built a wholesale and retail vegetable business. And the supply of that was the villages where the, the Catholic church had missions and they had trained not only were they teaching the kids you know basic literacy etc but they're also teaching them how to farm so there was a development organization really and the produce was sold in part through my grandmother's shop and and business i didn't go too often but i remember going on that ford truck that she had go collect the produce and then bring it turn around and bring it back to town where the demand was and and sell it and sell it to restaurants. But it was a mostly a wholesale business. So it was restaurants and supermarkets, stuff like that. And they had a small retail shop. But you know, this connection, I, I go back to my childhood, and this connection between production and sale is so clear to me. It's mm. <laughs> like, you know, and of course, the the, the the villages where we were sourcing was good. I have no idea what she paid them, but you know, they, they worked hard to produce it and and they thrived. So forward, you know, fast forward, and I ended up at Coca Cola after getting my MBA here in the United States. And frankly, I mean, I I think being a Coca Cola, which is an interesting company, I think it's a it's 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 got some incredible skills, you know, and talents and and ability and people. But my son, okay, this this I'll tell you a little anecdote. <laughs> I have two sons. At the time, my older son was twelve. So I was the chief marketing officer for North America. So my job was to sell a lot of soft drinks to a lot of people. I, I remember I was on his back on a Saturday morning. He was literally coming down from his bedroom and t- picking up a Coke out of the refrigerator. And I just said, that's not the right thing to do, blah, blah, blah. And I was giving him hell about that. And he, this is a 12-year-old, right? He turned around and said, Dad, you sell Coke to everybody and you don't allow me to drink Coke. You know? And that was, an, that was an epiphany for me. I said, oh shit, you know, the, t- the truth came very clear that I should not be doing this kind of work. So I left and I went to CARE, the big development mm-hmm. organization. Mm-hmm. And I did uh, some venture capital work. I did some investment, including Guayaquil, which you mentioned before. And so I was working, my, my venture capital work was to develop businesses in distressed communities. So it was not just to make money for the investors. My investors didn't really care about making money. No, they made money, but they didn't really care about it, which was nice as an investor group, but they, they were more interested in the impact that we were having. So the transition to Heifer was more, a friend of mine came and she came to me and said, there is a job open at Heifer International, the CEO and president, and you are the man that should take that job. She was an executive search uh, consultant. She did not have the account. She said, "That is the job for you. I'm telling you, go and apply if you want to do it. You will get the job because you are—you've got the right skill set for what needs to happen." So I applied. I applied online. <laughs> I knew—I I mean, I'd done some analysis of the company or the organization. I said, "I know what I can do with this organization. Okay, I can move it forward dramatically and do the kind of work that we're talking about: soil and alleviating poverty." working on nutrition, high quality nutrition, et cetera, et cetera. So that's what we did we've been doing over the past twelve years. So that's the yeah. transition. But it was I, 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 I blame quote unquote my son, my older son for kicking me out of the what was really a you know, just the money. It was a money you know, you just do it for the money. It was no more than that, honestly. If you really sat back and thought about working at Coke or working at IBM. They they try to have mission driven kind of perspectives, but it's really about the money. Hmm. And they pay well. They pay well, no question about it.
0: What an inspiring story. And you know it's it's so true like what we do. We were just, I was talking about this last night with a couple of friends about if children look up to what you do, it's like the ultimate benchmark right. that you're doing the right work. You know, it's like how does what you do inspire the youth or not, right? Um it's a good it's a good check for ourselves I think yeah. often. Um especially when you're a parent and you you're yeah. role, role modeling for your kids. Yeah.
1: No, I agree. You know, my oldest son, the one that uh, changed our lives, he's an artist now in Atlanta, quite successful locally. Uh, my other son is a monk <laughs> in a small community here in Dublin, Georgia. And I've got two stepdaughters. One's a dancer and the other one is a cyber technology expert. I can't talk to her. she's She talks a different language. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you can bond over blockchain now yeah great. she's great. She's, she's She's actually studying right now at Georgia Tech. so
0: what attracted you to, to move to Serenby?
1: well I, I I thought living in Sandy Springs, you know the, the standard uh, suburbs uh, was just not compatible with what we were thinking in terms of you know the biophilic view of, of, of the world, you know the connection to the forest. One of my greatest pleasures at Serenby, if you know, you know where my house is, I mean I can literally just trip over my fence in the backyard and I'm, I'm in a forest. And I have this, this Japanese notion stuck in my head about forest bathing. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you've heard of it, but just sure. be in the forest. You know, So I take my dog and we go over there and we just uh, forest bathe. I try to forest bathe two or three times a day, just even if it's just 10, 15 minutes just to mm-hmm. go in a forest and, and be with the trees. So that's what attracted me here. When we first came, my wife actually, Kim knew the, the origins of Serenbee. She knew Steve. She knew... Ah, uh, Dick Henderson. I don't know if you know all these people, but they basically started by buying an old farmhouse where the inn is now. Yep. And Dick, Dick Henderson sold it to Steve with his dream of what, you know, what's become. So she was actually involved in the B oh, wow. development way back in '94, '95. And uh, so we kept coming back and said, you know, we got to make a move. We got to make a move. And so we finally did. We and we found this house which we loved at first sight but it was way it was priced way out of our range and i said to my wife i said this house is quirky we're quirky we love it no one else is going to like it so just hang out and you'll see the price drop and it did Hmm. for once i was right in my forecast (laughs) price dropped to where we could afford it and uh, so we did we bought it and so we love this house it's very simple it's beautifully I saw, architecturally
0: i saw the building that it's in, that the architect was inspired by down yeah
1: right yeah that's right that's, that's right oh cool. yeah it's a tobacco art. drying yeah. warehouse yeah it's same cool. idea yeah it's really cool you know it's very rare that you have a house where you stare at the ceiling and you're inspired right this house is mm-hmm. like that
0: this has been great i love that we're having this conversation from from like you know a, a 10 minute walk from each other on on Probably going to space and back on Zoom. I'm looking forward to to hanging out in the house with you and, and but, g- dreaming up and collaborating, learning more from you. It's been really inspiring getting to know you and learning more about your journey and Heifer's work. And there's a lot of exciting opportunities here and around the world to make a difference. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. You know the focus we should have, or the, the keep, the question we should keep asking ourselves is how do we scale this up? It's going to be slow work, but uh, when I wrote Citizen Farmers, but
0: The idea was, you know, the reason there's a fist of beets on the cover, right? Is like, this is not Mm -hmm. so much about how to garden as it is the importance of us to be asking those questions. Like, what are we we doing? How are we taking actions to change the food system from our our own individual actions, right? And collective actions. The more people that ask these questions, when they go to the grocery store, they go to the restaurant or wherever they are, the more awareness can be raised. And, and the more the conversations can be had so that people start to, to kind of have that ripple effect, that kind of mycelium effect that, to scale, right? So there's, there's, I feel like there's kind of two different scaling. When I think about how do you scale it, you know, where, where I went initially was, you know, how do we build more Serenby type communities that are preserving the forest, preserving the farms, creating the infrastructure and the, the farming supply chain is one piece preserving the rural areas near where people are and activating that for regenerative agriculture and providing all the support that's needed to produce the food for those communities. And then on the other half is how do you educate the consumer? Those go hand in hand. So I love that. I love that uh, simplification in a way and, and reminder that, you know, we need to keep beating that drum. We need to keep asking those questions. How do people learn more about Heifer and and get involved in, in the work of? Yeah,
1: we you know we're we're very active for fundraising purposes. Mostly, we're very active in terms of telling them about poverty issues, nutritional issues, and that supporting us, especially supporting the smallholder farmers worldwide, is a way to deal with those uh, those kind of tragedies. In a way, I mean, and you still have you know you go to Guatemala and twenty five percent. Of the kids are malnourished you know this is a disaster you know and this is these are farming communities so we do a lot of social social media we do a lot of we are we are advertising a couple of places i was just watching i don't we don't watch very much tv but if you do if we do watch tv the tidal wave of you know continuing junk food advertising uh, is amazing because of covid i think a lot of people have bought their foods online you know having it delivered and i think most of the sites where you do buy food online have a description about more description and details about the farmer and the processing. I don't know if it's all lies or what, but at least (laughs) it engenders a conversation and a thought about, well, where does this come from? You know, if I'm buying salami, you know, who is actually, where's the pork come from? Where are the spices, where, et cetera, et cetera. So I I think there's been a shift because of the online buying of food, you know, because you don't buy junk food online. You know, that, that's something you do when you're a Kroger, uh, you know, but the online food market is for good marketing reasons. They all tout the incredible social and environmental responsibility of what it is that you're buying. I was just fascinated by the fish companies and how they're presenting their goods and they're able to ship, you know, fish from the Pacific Northwest, from, from Boston, wherever. And they talk about how the fish is caught. And I'm hoping, I don't know, I don't have any data that it's engendered a conversation about where food is come where it comes from, how it's handled before it gets to your house. And they talk a lot about quality nutrition. A lot of it is about the quality of the nutrition. You know, buy food from us, it's fresh, it's nutritious, got omega three, omega five, you know, want that kind of stuff. But it's it's a, it elevates the conversation. I'm, you, I'm very encouraged by that. And you know, we have a we have an e-commerce site, right? Grassroots for for the meat that we produce at the farmers co-op. It's That's called true. grassroots co-op. And and by the way, we use blockchain there, so we know you can buy a piece of beef or chicken or whatever, and you know exactly which farmers produced it. All of the farmers produce under the same kind of guidelines, so it's all it's all pasture raised uh, food, no chemicals, no no antibiotics. It, it's it's really very good, high quality, highly nutritious food, and which I think is important from a marketing point of view. It's delicious. It <laughs> makes a difference.
0: And you guys have um, some great resources now on on YouTube on how to raise yeah animals, right? So
1: absolutely, it's been viewed by a million people. That's amazing. It's amazing.
0: That's, and is that how do people find that? That's the under heifer.
1: I, I think they find it. You know, I want to raise. I'd like to raise chickens. So people go online and search, right? Okay. Well, I want to raise pork, and we show them how, exactly how to do that. It's it's not difficult if you're willing to work. <laughs> So
0: for folks who want to contribute and support Heifer, learn more, you can just go to heifer,
1: H-E-I-F-E-R.org. Yeah, that's it. Go there. And uh, if you want to buy meat from not only us, but also from all the farmers that are part of the co-op, go to grassroots.com there, not .org, .com. It's a business. And we have our own processing plants. It's local processing. So all the jobs are kept locally. We pay living wage, You know, pay over $15 an hour. You know our workers are well protected. you know it's it's a system. It's a very powerful and community enhancing system. There's something special when the whole when the land, the forest, the animals, everyone's taken care of. I know that sounds a little mystical, but it really is there.
0: oh you know? yeah, I think that's one of the things that's so powerful about having people go to the farms is it's such a different experience than when you go to a grocery store or you buy online. Yeah. When you right. actually go and you, you you feel the land and you, you yeah. see the animals, you actually are and you're talking about biophilia. You become a part of that. It is a spiritual experience. I mean, it really yeah. is. And we're, and we're so disconnected from that through our yeah. technology. Yeah. It's it's almost like it should be prescribed. It's yeah. like you're forest
1: bathing. There should be farm yeah. bathing. Yeah, farm bathing.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for what you're doing over there. And I'm so mm-hmm. glad you applied for that job. And have, uh, <laughs> it gives me hope that people like you and organizations like Heifer are
1: out there doing this work, and it's, it's inspiring. Oh, well, good. Well, you've, you've inspired me for a long time. Every, every time I see you in the, in the press, I say, I know that guy. <laughs> I know Farmer D. Now, now you
0: him. just see me in the, in the hood with my kids riding a I know, bike at
1: your house. <laughs> I know, I know. It's great. All, All right, right. I enjoy this beautiful, wet day. I know. It's getting more than wet and wet. It stopped raining. Join
0: the Citizen Farmers community. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook. For more information, check out today's show notes. This podcast is co-produced by Ben Bernstein. Our audio editor is Sarah Milligan. Thanks for listening to Season 2 of the Citizen Farmers Podcast, where we are reimagining community to create a healthier, more connected world. Do you care about the health of people and the planet? Connect with the Citizen Farmers Movement to grow healthy food, build your community, and give back to the earth. Through actions big or small. Follow us on Instagram or sign up for our newsletter at citizenfarmers.org. To learn more about our work at Farmer D, designing and building vibrant
1: farm-based communities, visit us at farmerd.com. Thanks for listening.